Welcome to Startup Hacks, a We Global Studios podcast. We explore the stories and secret strategies that women entrepreneurs use to save time and money when bootstrapping and building their businesses. I'm your host, Fernanda Carapina, and today I'm so excited to welcome Anne Devereaux Mills. Anne is an accomplished CEO, entrepreneur, and documentary film executive and founder of Parlay House, a global organization that gathers women both virtually and in person to spark authentic conversations and build meaningful, supportive relationships. Parlay House currently has over 10,000 participants that span countries, generations, races, sexual orientations, and more. Anne has been honored by a range of organizations, including She Can, Advertising Women of New York, the All-Stars Foundation, Project Kesher, and Worldwide Women. Welcome, Anne. Hi, thanks for having me. Such a pleasure to have you. It's so exciting to see all the different type of organizations that have been developed and are really growing in the last few years. And I know your organization has been in the works um, for a little bit longer than that in the area of supporting female networks, um, connecting women to other women, professional organizations, as well as our organization, which is focused on entrepreneurship exclusively. So I wanted to, I, I wanted to ask you if you wouldn't mind starting off our discussion today by providing some personal background just about you, where you grew up, where you went to school, how you got started. We always like to share with our founders kind of the origin story so um, you can sure. inspire other women. Yeah, well, I went to uh, Lakeside School in Seattle. I grew up in Seattle before Seattle was, you know, the Seattle it, it is now. Um, and I say that because um, Bill and Libby Gates, you know, Bill Gates, Microsoft, and Libby, his sister, were my classmates. And, you know, Bill would be walking off into the computer uh, computer room where we had these huge clunky computers and he was sort of figuring out the very basics and nobody understood how our futures would be changed based on what he and, you know, his, his fellow Microsoft founders went on to do. But, you know, I had an English teacher whose name was Robert Fulgham, who wrote everything I need to know I learned in kindergarten. Oh. And so, you know, I had this pretty, um, prolific, interesting, creative upbringing, um, and then went on to go to Wellesley College, where my experience was was very different in that, you know, I was no longer in sort of then provincial Seattle, but I was in Boston surrounded by 2000 amazing, smart, capable, talented, creative women. And it was really the first time that I understood the value and depth of female friendships. And so, you know, I really think that um, that early creative environment where we explored and um, tried new things and were encouraged to do so, followed by the camaraderie with other women, um, was really part of an important part of what I went on to do as my my second career chapter of life. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, what a what a really exciting time. And I'm sure looking back now, you probably have so many stories about Bill and what was going on kind of from an entrepreneurial standpoint way back then even. I'm wondering, once you graduated from Wellesley, were you thinking that you would, you know, one day become an entrepreneur or did you go straight into corporate America? 
You know, I went into corporate America first in something that was completely the wrong job for me. I had written my thesis in college on uh, political risk and third world investment and sort of thought I would go into the business world because it was what I assumed I was expected to do. And, you know, after some career iterations, I found myself in the world of advertising, which I really loved because it blended business and creativity, which I think is sort of where my brain uh, functions best. And I went on unexpectedly to sort of um, start to be a pioneer and an entrepreneur in a piece of advertising that is now very mainstream uh, for us. But I was part of the very first advertising agency that uh, talked to consumers about uh, pharmaceuticals, about drugs. And, mm. you know, when, when I started that, doctors were the only keeper of information and you couldn't be your own advocate and you couldn't know uh, what, what options were out there. And once I did that, along with a group of people within our, our advertising agency, I realized that I'm much more attuned to starting and building companies than I am to, you know, just sort of being part of the day to day. And that really was transformative. I went on to um, found a number of other major global healthcare advertising agencies for some of the biggest uh, names in the business, BBDO, Shia Day, names like that. And wow. I, I think I have sort of an entrepreneurial spirit at heart. So you were at an agency and based on that experience, you were inspired to then go out and start your own yeah, agency. Someone, someone recruited me to start another agency for them and another agency for them. And, it, you know, just sort of it happened that I was mm -hmm. really good at, um, you know, digging and digging for the first couple of clients and putting together teams and then building, building a brand and growing a business. And I, I just, you know, regardless of who I'm doing it for, I love doing that. Well, just a sidebar note, only because obviously marketing and sales is such a key part to success in any business. Would you um, would you comment on what you think the state of play is today, kind of in that business and advertising and how you've seen it change and evolve? Oh, gosh, it's so funny. One of my jobs at BBDO was uh, I was the chief integration officer. And mm -hmm. this is probably... Oh gosh, 15 years ago, maybe. And, and my role was to take all of the companies that Omnicom was acquiring. And they were, this was the early days of digital or place-based marketing or, you know, anything that is now part of our mainstream and introduce it to the big clients, the FedExes, the GEs of the world. And I remember thinking, um, you know, someday if I do my job well enough, we'll no longer need a chief integration officer because all of these new mediums will be incorporated into how we go about life. And sure enough, uh, that job did sort of wear itself out. And digital especially is now, you know, front and center with everything advertisers do. And, you know, I grew up in the days where you'd come up with a TV campaign, you'd run it for a year and you'd see if it worked. And, right. you know, today you run it for an hour or for, you know, five minutes and see if mm -hmm. it works and iterate, iterate, iterate. So it was, you know, a very, very um, transformative time to be part of that world. And also, uh, just because we're always very focused on bootstrapping strategies for founders, so interesting how a really creative ad, which can be produced nowadays, for for example, for YouTube for five, ten, twenty thousand yeah. dollars, if done well, can really just completely launch a business. 
Absolutely. And, you know, I, I grew up in the days where Malcolm Gladwell would come and talk to us about how, you know, how trends are started and thinking outside of the box. And I was, you know, I was really lucky to be exposed to people like that who did start these small movements that, you know, rippled into huge change. And that, that was really part of my part of my thinking. And do you miss the advertising side at all? I miss working with creative people. I don't think, I, you know, it's a, it's a very tough business, especially tough to be, it was at my time to be a woman in that business. Um, and, you know, generally it, it's a business that the longer I was in it, the more it transitioned from uh, emphasis on amazing creative work to um, business that was managed and chosen and driven by procurement and by um data and by returns and that you know i i'm much more comfortable on the creative side than on the the bottom line minute by minute data side so and i think i think i got out at the right time for me and it seems like the business is very focused on providing value now i think with the advent very. of free services free platforms free this free that and what do you think is coming down the pike after value? It's just like you give away so much value. And then do you ever get concerned that what is left to then really sell? You know, I think we'll get to a point where quality declines when the emphasis is on value because you constantly have to cut somewhere. So you cut from product or you cut from experience. And I think the result of that is you lose connection with your customer and you lose loyalty and you don't anymore have that um, group of advocates that's really at the forefront of driving your brand. I mean, today those are the, the quote unquote influencers, but many of them are paid to be influencers and not influencers because they're true advocates of your brand. And I'm not sure how sustainable that is. Absolutely. So at what stage were you at when you decided that you wanted to leave the business? What happened? What it's, happened it's so funny that we're talking about entrepreneurialism today because I was asked during the recession of 2008, 9, 10 to run a turnaround for Omnicom rather than a startup. It's definitely not my sweet spot. I'm not mm. someone who's into downsizing and right sizing and you know all of that. I really want to be, be building. And, but I was doing it because I was a good corporate citizen. And uh, I was a single mom. I was commuting from Summit, New Jersey into Manhattan uh, every wow. day at the at the crack of dawn, going to the gym, getting to the office, running a company and coming home and being a mom. Mm -hmm. And I'd also been through a pretty brutal divorce and I'd had uh, cancer surgery a couple years before. Wow. And I thought my life was on track when I got a call from my oncologist that the last visit had shown the cancer cells were back and I needed to have another aggressive procedure. And, you know, I, all of us who, who are slugging it away in the work world are tough. And so mm -hmm. I just thought, okay, you know, I'm tough. I could, I've been through this before. And I walked into my boss's office and said, sorry, got to take a few weeks off to have the surgery, but I'll be back and I'll keep running the company. And I've, I'd worked for him for 25 years building businesses. And he said, nah, I'm going to have someone else run the company. <laughs> and at that moment, I lost my job and wow. I lost my health and my last kid was going to college. And I had this, you know, incredibly deflated moment. If I'm not those things, if I'm not the CEO, if I'm not the actively involved mom, if I'm not at the gym at five in the morning uh, working out, what am I? Mm -hmm. And that was really the, the moment that began, began my thinking about Parlay House, which is, you know, where I spend most of my focus now on, on building connected communities for women in places where they don't already exist.
what year was that in? I moved to San Francisco to be with the guy I was dating long distance, who's now my husband, uh, in 2010. And Parlay House formally uh, was founded in 2012, but I started noodling it 2010-2011. Beautiful. Well, I, I really love digging in on the early stages of the start of a company because by the time someone recognizes a, a product or service or brand, et cetera, um, they don't really realize that it usually takes many, many years before you even get to that point. I think there's so, <laughs> there's so much in the press about, you know, companies, they exit in three to five years because of VC investment. And you forget that sometimes you're working in the proverbial garage for five years before you even get to a place where people start to notice exactly. you. So, so can you walk us through that a little bit? Sure. You know, I, I realized with this, um, this transformative moment that the relationships I had built when I was in, in power, you know, as a CEO, as someone who'd had a well-established reputation, when I got sick and lost my job, the number of quote unquote friends that I had um, from work went from the hundreds or even thousands to maybe five, I could count, mm -hmm. um, who were really there for me. And I sort of thought, well, you know, what, what kind of world is that? Do I want to live with people who are only around when I have something to give or they have something to give me? And I, I had been lucky enough to have been made a fellow of the Aspen Institute, a Henry Crown fellow um, in sort of the early 2000s. And one of the things that we did as part of this leadership uh, program, and it was really about values-based leadership, was it, you know, it took 20 of us who were all meeting this criteria of under 45, high, you know, high achieving, have hit certain milestones, but wide ranges of uh, of day to day lives, whether it was politics or, you know, uh, financial, the financial world or the creative world or, you know, whatever it was. And why, you know, Democrats and Republicans and public sector and private sector. And we would share experiences like reading something historical or current uh, or listening to a piece of music or uh, talking about something conceptually, something philosophic. And by having those shared experiences that sort of got our brains and hearts moving, all of a sudden the differences between us fell by the wayside and the trust and comfort in each other and our ability to sort of be the crutch for each other um, emerged very clearly. And I was thinking 12 years after I'd been part of that program, when I'm now trying to figure out my life, wow, I wish I had that, but I wish I had that with the women in my life who I remember from Wellesley, and I'm one of three sisters, so I remember from my childhood, as being, you know, supportive and being able to talk about things. You know, my, my cancer was female in nature. I had cervical cancer, then I had vaginal cancer. And, you know, you can't walk around the, the corporate boardroom talking about that with any great level of comfort, but mm -hmm. I could with my, with, with women. And so, you know, I was living in San Francisco and we have this beautiful view of the Bay. And uh, it was one of those days where the sun was setting and pink and purple clouds were in the sky. And I just wanted a girlfriend to come over and have a cocktail and, um, talk about things that mattered. And I didn't know a soul except mm. the guy I'd moved to be with. And so I asked friends of friends, I'm like, who do you know in San Francisco? And I ended up inviting 12 strangers into my living room to just have a conversation. 
I mean, I literally, mm. these they, they were, they were qualified in that they were friends of friends, but they were people I'd never met, had no idea what we would talk about. And we literally just started having a conversation. And at the end of a couple hours, everybody said, oh my God, that was so unique. I have not experienced anything like that before. I do so much superficial networking and transactional business. And this was from the heart with people I'd never would have met who are different in every possible way from me, except once we strip away those perceived differences, we all have so many similar experiences and needs and, you know, things to celebrate and things to mourn. And why aren't we acting as a female community for each other? And so, you know, the next month, everybody brought a friend and we went from 12 to, I don't know, 25. And the month after that, more and more people came. And all of a sudden we realized we really had hit on something. So I started introducing content like we'd had at um, at the Aspen Institute, but this was content of speakers, other women who had meaningful stories to tell that were mm -hmm. inspiring or challenging or raw or shocking or whatever. And, you know, it's just grown since then. Um, so we have uh, about 20 different chapters around the world where we have live events every month. And then during COVID, of course, that went crashing to a halt because we couldn't mm -hmm. have live events with strangers anywhere. So we shifted it to digital. And I got to tell you, I've heard from so many people around the world of how our weekly content and every single week we would host an amazing hour long conversation with somebody um, who was who was provocative and engaging and interesting. And it really was the thing that the women who were trying to hold down the fort and still do their jobs while their kids were running around making noise. And, you know, they had a million things to do and they're hiding from the world. They said, you know, this these conversations saved me. They gave me a sense of the bigger world out there. And so, you know, that that was incredibly fabulous and reinforcing to hear. And so now we're back in a hybrid situation now that we can be back safely in, in the real world. And we do both. So we keep gathering and expanding to different cities around the world for live events. And we have these uh, now every other week virtual conversations for women in cities where we haven't uh, established ourselves yet. And is there a kind of a theme that you strive to deliver on um, for with the company or with the gatherings, or is it pretty varied? It's it's widely varied because you know you 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 might pick a topic um, like I'll throw one out uh, menopause, and you'll think, well, you know, Anne, your members are eighteen years old to we have members in their mid eighty years old. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And do they really want to be hearing about menopause? And you'd think, no, it's a subset. And why, you know, who, who's that going to attract? But then all of a sudden, we start to understand that if you're a young woman, and you have a, uh, a mother who isn't behaving the same as she used to, or you have an older woman with wisdom to share, people are not limiting their interests to where they are at that very moment in their lives, but they're understanding their context as part of communities. And so, you know, we have we have conversations that are, um, you'd never think you'd talk about it in a public setting. Next month in New York, we'll have Cindy Gallup, who is uh, the founder of MakeLoveNotPorn.com, talk about her own relationships <laughs> and why she started an alternative um, sort of sex channel for mm -hmm. people who don't want pornography to inform their their sex lives. We mm -hmm. had a member of ours who I didn't know anything about her secondary life, she's a marketing person, and she came up to me and said, you know, Anne, I think you'd want me to be a speaker. And a lot of people say that to me, and sometimes they're right, <laughs> sometimes they're not. Um, 
And I said, really, why? And she said, because at night I'm a working dominatrix. And it's oh my for God. reasons and I want to tell my story. You know, and then we have women who help women who are in a transitional stage, you know, divorced or getting a new job, figure out how to best manage their money. Or we have um, a, the woman who, I don't know if you saw the film Free Solo, but Deirdre mm -hmm. Willowick is the mom of the climber in Free Solo. And she is now 71 years old and continues to set personal records for her own climbing. And her climbing career didn't begin until she was 60 and wanted to connect more with her son who was always hanging off the side of a mountain somewhere. And so she, you know, she's told us her journey from, um, sort of flabby and out of shape to scaling El Capitan, wow. you know, at 70 years old. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's people who make you feel and think and um, open up the conversation to find commonalities with women that are not part of your social circle. And now that the company has been in existence now for over 10 years, do you feel that it's changed at all as you've evolved? from how you first thought about it? Um, you know, what's nice is in the cities where we've been going for a while, it's not so hard to build momentum. You know, I think for all the entrepreneurs who are listening, it's incredibly hard and discouraging and exasperating sometimes to, to get your business moving and to get people to care. And so I think, you know, the easy thing in, in cities like San Francisco, New York and LA and Boston, uh, we now have momentum that makes it um makes it fun and mm -hmm. you know i love being sold out all the time because of high demand so that's kind of great but other things we're really still figuring out you know how do we find relevance in places where people don't have um homes where they're they can they can host and how do mm -hmm. we the, one of the hardest things to quote unquote police and we have very very few few rules but the only two rules we have are you don't come and introduce yourself by what you do for a living Mm -hmm. And you don't come with an ask, you know, mm -hmm. you have a startup, you don't come to ask someone if they can volunteer their marketing services. Mm -hmm. And that way women feel safe that they're not, that it's going to be about them. You know, I don't know about you, Fernanda, but um, I find I'm at the bottom of the totem pole of who gets taken care of most of the time when we're mm -hmm. parents and spouses and children, you know, and, and dog owners and employees. Yeah. We, we spend a whole lot of time uh, doing things for everyone else. And we really want this to be the moment that is for the women who come without an ask and without an assessment of them based on what they do, because all of us are so much more than just what we do for a living. Interesting. I love that. I love that. And have there been some amazing friendships that have come out of this for you and for others? Unbelievable. So I'll tell you, this is, this is an awesome story The I guess it was 2019. So right before COVID, um, a bunch of women that I'd met at Parlay House said, Anne, it's your birthday. We'd love to have a birthday party for you. Come over, come over for dinner. And so I was like, wow, that's so amazing. Look how much <laughs> has changed since I moved to San Francisco. So I moved there and someone made a toast. And I said, you know, I've got to toast you when I moved here and didn't know anybody. I never thought, but I hoped I would be welcomed into a circle of friends the way you all are welcoming me. And they all stopped and looked at me and they said, are you kidding? And we weren't a circle of friends. We met at Parlay House and we oh. became friends because, you know, so I thought I was being being invited into a circle, but that circle was actually created um, through what I was doing. So that was wow. incredibly validate, personally validating for me. 
Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah. And um, and do you feel that the business uh, you're a for profit? Is that is that correct? Or are you a non profit? Yeah. You're a for profit. So, We're a for profit with a non profit arm. With a non profit arm. So. It, do you ever, and then I want to move on to our, our last section, which is about um, bootstrapping strategies, but do you find as you look to scale your business, because this is always something that um, is sometimes challenging for founders who really kind of love the raw essence of what they're doing, but then when they look at scaling it, making it bigger, potentially yeah. bringing in investors, it requires yeah. re-looking through that lens and you know, sometimes you struggle with, I'm not so sure I want 100%. to go in that direction. Right. Yep. 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 I have not taken investor money uh, for that exact reason that I'm not so sure I want anyone else to be um, informing how we grow and, and how we do what we do. I might get to that point, but I'm, I'm not, not there at the moment. So I think, I think that's a, a, a great observation on your part and, um, and a key problem is mm -hmm. how do you scale without losing the emotional essence of your of your business and how do you grow a company when it grows beyond you yeah and i find yeah. that finding people who share my values and my style and who bring additional things to the table has been key you know my my right hand person uh and i'm a 60 year old woman my right hand person is a 28 year old who mm -hmm. is um you know i'm i'm a sort of a serious business person introvert and she is an extrovert former cheer squad captain um who you know is is heavy into social media and all the things that someone of my age you know dips my toe in but it's you know it's not part of my my daily life and i've found that having these these partners who are so different in their life view and their life experience and their um, skills and their natural abilities it's a much greater build to a company than a one plus one you know i think we add up to three or four when we put each of our best skills together and so i really try to do that is if 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 we need to bring people on and we now have wonderful um, larger team, it's it's what's the common value system and then what do they bring to the table that I don't? And knowing that I'm not going to always be wanting to be at the helm, how do I groom them from very, very early stages of feeling ownership of what we're doing and, you know, possibly being able to take over? That's wonderful. So now let's talk about bootstrapping. Um, so yeah. the show is called Startup Hacks, and it's all it's all about interviewing um, incredible female founders who, at different stages of their business, who have mastered certain secret strategies that are their own that have helped them to either gain a competitive edge, save money, save time. And it can be anything from time management strategies to self-care strategies, hiring practices, systems, books, etc. So would you mind sharing maybe a top three go-to strategies that you think helped you to keep your sanity and to develop such a great business? Absolutely. I mean, I, th I think the first thing is there are many, many, many people who are successful by finding an unmet need in the marketplace and mm -hmm. solving for that. My business has succeeded and I've been able to sustain working on it now for more than 10 years because 
it's filling an unmet need for me and for people at a at a personal gut soul level. And I think that rather than the rational uh, business place, when you can find something you're doing that truly feels integrated into who you are and how you live and what you hope for and uh, what's important to you, it makes it a lot easier. So mm -hmm. I think that that's the first thing. The second thing is, and, and I learned this the hard way, um, try to have the people that are involved with your company have sort of skin in the game for its success. And when I first started, um, I just hosted these strangers for free. And as we got bigger, I still kept hosting it for free, um, trying to figure out what the financial model would be. And I found out when it was free, we would have about a 50% no-show rate. And obviously when you're, you know, catering food and wine and, you know, you don't really want to have all this stuff going to waste. And so I thought, what if everybody helps me? And we started charging to come to the events, 25 bucks. So nothing that would prohibit anyone, regardless of where they are from an income standpoint mm -hmm. to come because there's you know there's no qualifier everyone is welcome regardless of what they earn um and 25 dollars is sort of like two glasses of wine sure. out at night so that didn't seem astronomical and sure enough our um our engagement rate spiked and we had 90 percent plus show up mm. rates and we made a rule that if you can't come there aren't refunds but you're allowed to gift it to a woman who might not be able to afford to come and so mm. we we um share our um you know share our community that way and so i think finding ways we also have a lot of people who who feel so passionate about what we do that they're constantly asking us how they can help so we really created an inner circle of of the advocates that i was talking about you know that you really want to have with your business or your brand and yeah. find ways to make them feel part of an inner circle and to be able to share you know when they can when they can speak from the heart about their passion for what you're doing and it's not the founder ceo speaking it's sure. a voice really louder than than the founders and so i think um finding the people who believe in you most and letting them help you do the talking um is not only kind of quote unquote free work but it's far more persuasive than if you're trying to sell someone something absolutely that is so so important i completely agree getting those brand ambassadors and 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 more importantly harnessing the power of those brand ambassadors having a program in place to do that um can be really critical in in facilitating the growth and kind of organic growth of your business yeah. And, and we do a lot of things when we have, you know, we have our podcast called Bring a Friend, which is a really fun podcast. And we've had people like Tina Knowles, Beyonce's mom, or Cory Booker, who's a, a senator who ran for president and, you know, these sort of amazing people. And while we don't pay an honorarium for our podcasts, what we do is find ways if someone has a cause or, um, you know, they're teaching something, we find ways to augment their whether it's reputation or their business or whatever, by, by truly acting as partners. So by them speaking to our group, we help them grow theirs through promotion, through uh, collaboration, partnerships, et cetera. So it's, it's a very collaborative business model. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything else you would like to add? We're almost out of time. No, but I love that you're doing this show. I think um, figuring out how to bootstrap in in non-traditional ways is incredibly helpful. And so, you know, thanks for thanks for having me. And you know, I hope I'll see you at a Parlay House event uh, in LA sometime soon. 
Yeah, absolutely. You certainly will. I've actually, uh, I've been one of those, uh, I have registered once and then I had to unfortunately cancel, but I will definitely rebook and go and hopefully uh, meet you and some of the staff. I would love yeah, that. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, so before we go, uh, Anne, would you mind sharing again, your website or any of your social yeah. Uh, handles? Yeah, um, you can find me, uh, best way is through parlayhouse.com, P-A-R-L-A-Y, uh, house.com. You can also find us through bringafriend.com, which is our really fun podcast where the, the tagline is where real people shine and where people who shine get real. So you'll hear a <laughs> lot of great, great and provocative conversations there. And, you know, I'm, I'm on all the social media. You'll, you'll see me embarrassingly on TikTok because that's what Ariel, my right hand, tells <laughs> me to do. But, I, you know, I'd much rather you were with us at Parlay House. So let's just start with those. You can also find my book on Amazon. Well, we will for sure yeah. spread the word about the great work that great. you're doing and thank you again i so thank appreciate you it. great yeah, conversation absolutely. thank okay. you tune in next week for more startup hacks we have another great show you won't want to miss on the secret female founder strategies that will save you time and money when building your business this podcast is brought to you by we global studios the first startup innovation studio and digital do-it-yourself startup platform for women entrepreneurs around the world for more information on our guests this podcast and many other female founder programs please visit weglobalstudios.com i'm your host fernanda carapina and we will see you next week